We've been missionaries for 38 years, and you've been our partners for 27. I hope you grasp for a moment here the significance of this. There's something else that's very significant that I want to point to before I talk to you about Mali or anything else. Uh, so uh, just stay with that slide. That, that beautiful lady up there, Linda, I take her everywhere with me. She's not here today. And I sometimes tease her, by the way. I say to people, I take her everywhere, and she keeps coming back. Uh, 42 years she's been coming back. We've, we've been married 42 years. The Lord has been so, so good. She's my partner in missions, my friend. She brings, she told me to bring greetings to you. Uh, she could not leave uh, California where we opted to be this furlough to take care of her very elderly dad, 94 years old. We believe very strongly in giving back to our parents. So she is a main caregiver, but when she can't get someone to replace her, so she doesn't travel with me. She regrets that. In fact, this morning I called her and uh, poor gal, she's in bed sick. So for those of you who know Linda, uh, just remember her in your prayers today. Let me say something that's very significant that I, I, I noticed this morning coming in. Someone handed me a bulletin, and inside the bulletin, I found this. Did you get one of these? If you didn't get one, you need to get one. If you got one and you lost it, you're in trouble with me already. <laughs> this is significant. We talk about my mission's faith promise. I, I want you to understand this is not about a fundraiser. This is not a fundraising program. This is the kind of stuff that made it possible for someone like me to know Jesus Christ. I was born and raised in a Muslim home. It's because of people like you who got involved in missions and even way back then did something like what you're invited to do today did something in terms of a faith promise, believing God to provide so that missionaries can be sent. Jesus said, go into the whole world. That's the great commission. And this morning we need to understand it's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. But the Bible also says, how will they go except that they be sent? They have to be sent. So they are goers and they are senders. And in terms of sending people like you, made it possible for a missionary to come to where I was living and preach the gospel to a Muslim young man. And as a result of that, not only did I come to Christ, but seven people in my family also came from a Muslim background, from a Shia Muslim background, fanatic Muslims who have come to serve Jesus Christ. Even one of my own sisters is an Assemblies of God missionary to the Middle East today because of it. It is significant. It's not just a piece of paper. It's our covenant, it's our commitment between us and God to do something so that somebody somewhere would get to know the gospel. You've been helping us through your faith promise and your commitment through the years we've been able to work in Mali. When we were here last time, we talked about 
what God was doing in the north of Mali and in other places, two ethnic groups that were open. And then uh, things developed recently that I'll say more about this evening when I'm with you, so I'm not going to go there too much right now. Uh, how the country, half of it was taken by Al-Qaeda and how God delivered us of this and the miracle he did in Timbuktu. But then since I was with you last time, the Lord led us to begin to focus on unreached people group. In fact, the people we're working with in the country of Mali have three things in common. They are part of what we call an unreached people group. Unreached meaning no church, no witness of Jesus Christ, no viable church there. There may be a Christian here and there that have been one to Christ, but it's such a tiny, tiny number that it hasn't even registered a blip on the radar yet. They're unreached people group. And to understand that, to put it in perspective, think of something between Chicago, downtown Chicago, all the way past Lamont, and this whole entire area, the suburbs of Chicago, with no church at all. That's what we mean by unreached. Unreached people group. We focus on the Malenke. In fact, we did so with two of your people, Tom and Jenny Keating. They were my partners these past few years in penetrating the Malenke. Not only are they an unreached people group, but the second thing about them is that they are extremely poor people. Some of the poorest. Mali has been downgraded from fifth to now third poorest nation in the world. Most of them poor farmers. And the third thing that they have in common is that they are Muslims. All of them are resistant to the gospel. Now I want to put that in perspective for a moment. I know that the word Muslim does not conjure warm, fuzzy feelings in most of us. And understandably so. But let me just remind you that Muslims are people. They're people for whom Jesus died. Somebody say amen, please. He loves them. He died for them. Jesus loves Muslims. I didn't say Jesus loves Islam. You have to distinguish between Muslims and Islam. Islam is the system that holds these people captive and in gross darkness. Muslims are the first victims of Islam. When I was a a kid, six years old, I remember seeing something in a building where I had heard some melodious sounds and bells, bells ringing and I'd come over to look at what was going on in that building. And I saw people going into that building, come to first at the entrance of the building to, to a basin of water, and they would dip their fingers in the water and then go something like this. It was a Catholic church. I had no idea what that was about. In my little Muslim mind, and my religious experience at home, there was nothing to help me process this or give it some meaning. I was just mesmerized by it. That's it. At home that day, at the time of washing our hands before the meal, which for us is a religious duty, literally, I'm, I'm playing with the water. And I'm remembering what I saw in that building, in that church. And I'm taking the water and I'm playing with it and I'm going something like this. 
That's when my father happened to come by and saw me do that very thing. Suddenly he screamed. What are you doing? Who taught you this? What have you been to them? Before long, he was actually slapping me. He was panicked and I was even more panicked than he was. And he's telling me that this is the stuff that the blasphemers do. This is the stuff that the idolaters do. This is the stuff that the infidels do. This is the thing that the Christians do. If I ever catch you doing what the Christians do, I will kill you. That was my introduction to the word Christian. Muslims grow up with all kinds of misperceptions about what a Christian is. They don't understand. They, don't, they think they know us, but they don't. They think that Christians are idolaters who worship many gods. I mean, one of them is the father. Another one is the son. Another one to them, at least, is Mary. Another one is who knows what. Many gods. They don't understand. They think we dishonor God by talking about him having a son with a woman in a carnal way. They think that we dishonor God by talking about his holy prophet having been defeated by wicked people and killed on a cross. How can that be? That would be the defeat of Allah himself. That cannot happen. That's dishonoring God to speak that way. From their perspective, Christianity is teaching bad things. From their perspective also, you have to understand that Muslims do not separate culture from religion. Not at all. They think that just because you're an American, you're a Christian. They think all Americans are Christians. They think Western culture is Christianity. Everything that we see in the West, whether it's in Europe, in America, or elsewhere, wherever Western culture has gone, that's Christianity. Because in their own system, they don't separate their culture from their religion. It's all one package. Their politics, their culture, their customs, everything is Islamic. Everything is the religion. So when they're looking at you, they're filtering Their evaluation, they're evaluating, let me put it this way, through that filter, they don't separate your culture from Christianity. And they are saying to themselves that Western culture, with everything terrible in it, that's the product of Christianity. One of them asked me, why does your religion allow people to do some of the terrible things they do? And he said, he frowned and he looked at me and he said, your religion allows a man to marry a man. Oh, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. Followers of Jesus do not believe that. Well, how come your religion, if that's not your religion, then how come your religion didn't stop that? That's the kind of thinking that you have in people that we're trying to reach that are Muslim. Anything that's Christian, they will immediately raise up a wall of prejudice and then just shut the door. And they will not listen. No matter how you explain it, the misunderstanding and the suspicions remain. So, here's my question. How in the world do you reach people like that? How do you do it? This is where God steps in and reminds us. He's the God who's always doing a new thing. Isaiah 43. He's the God who says it's unusual. It's not going to be The ordinary thing, it will be just like rivers coming into a place of sand dunes. That's how unusual it's going to be. He's the God who says, also in Corinthians, 
I want people by all possible means to be saved. That's what he does. So when we ask ourselves, how are we going to do that? And even I, as a former Muslim, coming into the situation in Mali, dealing with unreached people groups who immediately, with whom I can never even say the word Christian, I'm asking, God, how do I do this? And the answer of the Lord is always, you got to be prepared. I'm going to do something new, and I'm going to save people because by all possible means, that's what I intend to do to bring people to Christ. Now, when you put these two things together, when you have this combination, a new thing that is really extraordinary, according to what Isaiah says, and then add to that the expression, all possible means. When you put those two together, what do you have? You have not business as usual, but you're going to have business unusual. Business unusual. God began to show us that to do what we need to do in that unreached people group in Mali, we're going to have to go about it in the unusual dimensions of work outside the box, so to speak. Unusual. God began to put statements like the one on your screen. Do you want to have Muslims come to the Lord? Do you want to have what you've never had before? And as, as soon as you say yes, the Lord says, are you prepared to do what you've never done before? Do you realize that principle is one that holds true for us right here in Lamont as well as in Timbuktu? To have what you've never had before, you've got to be willing to do what you've never done before. God began to impress on our hearts and reminding me, in fact, through different things that had happened before in Mali, that he was preparing us to come into business unusual. It couldn't be like the work we did in Ivory Coast. Because, you know, before we went to Mali for a time, during those 27 years of partnership, we were in the country of Ivory Coast. In that country, south of Mali, we saw the work of God in within, within 16 years we saw the work of God go from about 2,000 believers nationwide to almost a million people. A million people. Tremendous revival. You were part of that, by the way, because you sent us, not that we won those, those, that million people, but we were part of something that God did there, and we saw the church become a strong church, and then we were released to go to the country of Mali. Now, we used to joke in the Ivory Coast that if somebody sneezed, and someone said, God bless you. Well, we had a convert. Somebody heard that, we had a convert already. That's how easy it was because in that atmosphere of revival, that's what it is. But in Mali, it's now a totally, different, a totally different story. God began to say to us, it cannot be the way you did it in the Ivory Coast. It has to be different. It's got to be business unusual. To be willing to do what you've never done before. Well, like what, Lord? How about teaching a grown man the rudiments of the alphabet? How about doing literacy? Let me tell you again about Dawood Jimmy. I believe I said something about him last time I was here, but I want to focus on his story for a moment to, to, to just clarify this issue of business unusual. Things, you're doing things that seminary didn't prepare you to do. We were working at a construction site, and we hired some people to help us mix concrete. Dauda Jimmy was one of those guys. I had already picked up on a, a hint that the Holy Spirit gave me, because every time I tried to speak to a Muslim, the wall would go up. 
the Holy Spirit said, don't speak to them. You know, God is always full of stuff like that that's unusual and sounds absurd. Lord, you sent me here to the, to, to the other end of the world to speak to people about you, and you're telling me not to speak to them. What does that mean? Well, God says, don't talk to your Christian friend about me in the presence of those Muslims who are listening. Because the moment I speak to them directly, the wall goes up. But when I'm talking to my Christian friend and say, hey, let me tell you something. And then I begin to talk about one thing or another, or a problem, about an issue, or something God did, or the grace of God, or a story from the Bible that Muslim is listening, and Dauda Jeme was listening. So he comes to me and he says, I never heard those stories. I'm a religious man. I go to the mosque all the time. How come I never heard those stories? I said, well, now that they're part of the Injil, which is the word in their language for the gospel, and it's part of that book we call the Holy Bible. Would you like a Bible? And Dauda says, yes, but, but I don't know how to read. I've never gone to school. The United Nations says what I'm going to tell you. This is not my statistics. 70%, over 70% of the people in Mali don't know how to read and write. Imagine that. So Dauda says to me, I can't read. And I say to him, would you like to learn to read and write? The moment I said that, I said to myself, "Uh uh-oh, what are you doing? (laughs) Because the guy latched onto it. Yes, I want to learn. Wow. God was reminding me through that simple little event right there that I was ignoring a very important principle. That of meeting people at their point of need. 70% of the nation is illiterate. And what do I want to do? Just stand at some street corner with a microphone and begin to proclaim the gospel to people who immediately will put up a wall. Instead of listening to God who's saying, I want to do a new thing. Meet them at their point of need. Do something about his need. Of course, I argued with God and I said, I wasn't trained in seminary to teach the rudiments of the alphabet to an adult. And God said, do it. So I embarked on that. A month later, Dauda still didn't know how to read and write. But we were getting into the Bible stories in Genesis because I used the Bible in his language. He couldn't put the words together, but he got into the stories of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. It didn't go anywhere in the New Testament with him. Then the imam, the Muslim religious leader in the area where Dawda lived, found out that he was learning some things from non-Muslims. Because Dawda was talking about what was happening in Genesis 1 and 2. And it, was, it was new to him. To see even the grace of God there. The promise of a savior. And he's saying God did you know that God said somebody is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. Did you know that? That's what he was telling his friends. There's a promise. And he still didn't know who that one was. But at least he'd learned that much. And the imam hears this and says you have to stop learning these kind of things. Threatened him actually. Finally Dauda had to admit to us that he couldn't go on with the lessons. Because his imam forbade him. But you know when God says do something and you do it, as unusual as it might be, do you believe that God is going to hold his end of the bargain, that he's going to do his part? You believe that this morning? 
Amen. He does that. That very night, the Holy Spirit awakens Dawuda. He hears a voice speaking to him. He's so scared. He doesn't understand. It happened to him three times because at first he thought it was a dream, but when he realized it's not a dream, it was frightening to him. In fact, at one point, the third time, he was standing there with his machete, ready to defend himself. Who is there in the world speaking to him? And then he realized this was not a foe. This was not an enemy because the person speaking to him knew his name and had called him by name twice. Dauda, Dauda. Early in the morning when I thought I'd never see him again, Dauda is at my house. And he tells me the story that I just told you. And he says to me, teacher, what does it mean? I said, Dauda, tell me what the voice said. And he says, the voice said to me, don't give up on the learning. Because I will show you things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. This man is quoting Corinthians word for word to me. He doesn't know how to read and write. Unchurched, never heard a word from the New Testament. And he is telling me this is what he heard. And I said to him, repeat that to me. And he repeats it. And then he says, what does it mean? And the only answer I could give him after recovering from my shock was to take the Bible in his language, open it to that place in Corinthians, and I read it back to him. And then he realizes that the God of the universe, Almighty God, broke, broke, broke into time and space and spoke to him. And he started to shake, and his legs couldn't hold him, and he crumples to the floor. And he holds his head and says, what must I do, teacher? What must I do for God to accept me? And then I were on our knees with him and we introduced him to the master. We were there because you sent us to be there. And we prayed with him. Not only did Dauda get saved, not only was he transformed, not only did he learn to read and write, but he got filled with the Holy Spirit. And then God calls him to ministry. And then he pioneers a vibrant church in the city of Bamako. He came into the kingdom and became an instrument of God. As we obeyed God in something unusual, business unusual. Who would have thought that a literacy course would have made that kind of difference? I use this to remind you that this is what God, I believe, is even here in America saying to the church. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Business unusual. Business unusual. The Holy Spirit used another example from my past experience, my journey with him, to remind me of things that he had allowed so that I would be prepared to penetrate the unreached people group that I'm working with right now. Let me tell you about my own father. When God speaks to you about doing a new thing, sometimes what he leads you into will sound so absurd. My father rejected me completely, threatened me when he found out that I had become a Christian. Now you have to understand that from his perspective. He is a father who sees his eldest son having embraced everything that he believes is diabolical. I mean, imagine you're a father 
And you hear about your son or your daughter having been involved in some kind of weird cult somewhere that's devilish, full of the occult, and God knows what, and she's, he or he is completely brainwashed into that. How would you feel? Especially when the community is speaking about it as a father. That's how my dad felt. It was a sense of shame for him. He could not accept that. And he responded in the only way that he knew from his religion, with threats. With threats. I literally had to flee for my life. Then God brought about a reconciliation that was really special. When God leads you in humility to ask someone who is in the wrong, you ask them forgiveness for the hurt that they experienced that they have experienced on account of you. Say, I, I'm in the right. I believe in Jesus Christ. And my father was in the wrong persecuting me. But God says, tell him to forgive you. Ask him to forgive you for the sense of shame that came on his life. Because he doesn't understand who you are, but his sense of shame. Help him. Help him understand. God brought about a reconciliation. And then dad decides to come to America to visit the rest of the family. He lands in New York. I meet him in New York because he doesn't speak a word of English and I know he'd be lost in those terminals trying to make his way to a plane to get to California. I said, you know what? I'm going to just meet him. We'll visit New York, spend some time together. The first, first moment that we had together, once we got to the hotel room, my dad opens his suitcase, and here comes out the Muslim prayer mat. Man, I was angry inside. I said, Satan, may God rebuke you. The first thing I have to experience with my father here in America as we reconciled now and we're together is for him to pull out that prayer mat. And he had been in the plane, and Muslims pray five times a day, and I knew that he had, he had to do his prayers. Now he's going to bunch up all of the five prayers together and do them there. It's going to be a long time. And I'm saying, oh, man, what? The enemy is really evil. I'm just angry. And my dad says, well, where is East? Where's, I want to face Mecca. That's what Muslims do. They do the Qibla, which is the facing of Mecca. This is, it's required. And now he's recruiting me to help him do what I don't want to see him do. Finally, I gave him and I said, I found out and I've told him, okay, it's this way. So he rolls the prayer mat out, goes to the bathroom to do his ablutions, the washing, the ceremonial washing to be ceremonially clean for the prayer. And I'm seething inside. And then a voice says to me, get up and stand next to him and pray. So completely out of the blue, so unlike anything I was expecting, get up and stand with him and pray. And I said, immediately, I argued because I felt this was, I, I sensed that it wasn't Satan. I was tempted to say, I rebuke you, Satan, but mm, something in me said, what in the world is this? And my immediate response, I said, uh-uh, Lord, I am not doing any Muslim prayers. Isn't it wonderful how we Pentecostals love to argue with God, even if God speaks miraculously to us. I'm saying, no, I will not do that. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm not asking you to do Muslim prayers. Stand next to him and pray. Sounds absurd. Totally unusual. 
I was arguing with God when dad stood there, was about to start his prayers, and finally the imperative of it was, the burden was so heavy, I just threw my shoes off and ran and stood by his side. And he looked at me from the corner of his eyes. I didn't do all the gymnastics, but I don't know what happened. When I came to, I actually was flat on the floor. I had been sighing and weeping before God, praying for my father. And in that instance, as this happened, God began to do something in my father's heart. When I was through with that, I thought that that was the only instance it was going to happen. But for the next two weeks, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit kept saying to me. Stand up and pray with him. And then darkness was completely broken. The light broke through the darkness. The day came when my father said, what in the world do you believe? Because you're not what I expected you to be. If you're looking at the screen, I can tell you already, it's all mixed up. I just jumped all over the place. That's all right. My dad says to me, What are you? This is what I realized that through that experience, God was teaching me that to reach resistant people, you've got to change their perception of you. They're not going to listen until they see that you're not what they supposed you to be. My dad needed to realize that. So when he said, what are you? What do you believe? His perception of what Christians are had already been completely devastated, completely changed. And the day came when dad said, I want to believe like you. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. The very man who had persecuted me before came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Hallelujah. 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 Now, if I may, if you can backtrack on the slides, go back a slide or two. Things that you have to do to change the perception of people came to me with this experience with my father, but that's not all. God begins to teach you that rather than just witnessing to people, God introduced me to the concept of witnessing. Do you hear the difference? Not just witnessing, which is emphasis on proclaiming, speaking verbally, but rather withnessing, being with. And I'm not talking about being with them just geographically. I'm talking about being with them in terms of their struggles, in terms of their uh, heartaches, in terms of their lostness, in terms of their poverty, the people I'm dealing with, in terms of everything that they're struggling with. To be with them in that dimension as well. And I want to suggest to you that it's a very important part of your mission as well. If you ever wondered when you're witnessing to people here even in America and they don't respond. Number one, it's because they have perceived you in a way that you're really not. 
Let me say something. Earlier I said I'm, this has significance for us here even in Lamont because I'm, I'm going to say something that, that may not be you know, good news to your ears, but we're not just in a post-Christian era in America, in Western culture. We're really in an anti-God culture anymore to the point that the resistance I see in America to the gospel is really on par with the resistance of Muslims in any Muslim nation I've ever seen. Americans think they know you. When you get out of these walls and they hear you're an evangelical Christian, they may not say so with their mouth, but what they're thinking, yeah, we know about these bigots. We know who you are. We know about you extreme people. And they have a whole list of things that define you according to them. They think they know you, but they know zilch. They know nada. They don't know you at all. They suppose you to be something that you're not. And if you're going to change their perception, you have to be spending time with them. It's not going to be business as usual. You've got to change your perception, just like you would anywhere else. But you're going to do it not with just witnessing as you've always known it, but rather with witnessing, by being with people. In their struggles, in their need, in the arena where they live. Just as we are doing with an unreached people group. So you and I are in the same business and it's business unusual. Hallelujah. Are you with me on that? God help us. God help us to understand that. When you're dealing with resistant people... You find out that you have to win them to yourself. You've got to become credible. I remember how the Lord used Linda to speak to me about that issue. I was frustrated about some things and she said, honey, you have to spend time winning people to yourself. So what are you talking about? She says, well, I was reading in the book of Ruth how Naomi one Ruth to herself. Ruth said, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Linda says to me, do you realize how important that is? Do you realize that Naomi won Ruth to herself? And then she was able to win Ruth to her circle of friends, to her people, and then to her God. And Linda said, that's what we have to do. We need to be credible in the eyes of those Muslims we're dealing with. We've got to win them to ourselves. Had I heard that differently from anyone else, I would have said, no, I'm not about to be anybody's guru. But God brought about that principle. It is so vital to win them to ourselves, to be credible, because unless that happens, they are not going to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ, they first have to believe in us. How are we going to do that? Working with the Malenkis. Now you can skip those two, file, those two slides that, where I was talking about my dad. I put them out of order. Forgive me, my brother. If we can go to the slide after that picture of my dad, as we're working with the Malenkis doing business unusual, doing what we've never done before in order to be witnessing, to be with them. We began to work with extremely poor people by meeting them at a point of need, by bringing the whole gospel to them. When the Holy Spirit says, bring them the whole gospel, we understand that. 
But then when he says to us, it has to be the whole gospel to the whole man. Then you begin to realize, ah, what does that mean? And I'm going to come to that in an instant here. But in the next thing that it says, it says, by the whole church. We're in it together. It's going to take the whole church. The whole church. By the way, to come back to this thing, and if I may meddle again, Pastor Nichols, you forgive me. Every one of us here, every one of us should be involved in supporting a missionary somewhere, somehow. There shouldn't be, if, if we are, what are we, what, 150, 200 people, whatever we are. Whatever amount of people we have here, we should literally have that many cards turned in that say, I'm going to get involved. There is no one excluded. It's by the whole church. You either believe it or you don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, you need to be prayed for. I'm sorry I'm that assertive, but I'm passionate about this. We all got to be involved. It's not an amount of money that matters here. It's your involvement that matters. By the whole church. We believe in the whole gospel. We've got to believe that it has to be given by the whole church to the whole world. But let me come back to this idea of the whole man. This is what God says. I care as much about their empty bellies as I do their empty hearts. And you need to be concerned with their poverty, which is much more than just the lack of material things. Poverty is literally a culture. Poverty is a mindset. It's a way of looking at life, looking at what you don't have instead of what you really could do with what you have, whether it be little or what. Uh, the, and God says, meet them at their point of need and begin to change their outlook, address their poverty, minister to the whole man. That already was brewing in our hearts when we came here to you last time. And I shared that vision, not with the entire church, but with some people here in the church who got behind us. When I talked about an agricultural project that God was speaking to us about, Saying, get together with those poor farmers. Because I was saying to God, Lord, meeting them at their point of need, what do I do? And God said, well, who are they? I said, they're poor farmers. What's their problem? Well, they don't have enough food to eat. Uh, Why? Because they're doing subsistence level farming. So, and I said, well, they need to plant more land, more acreage. They're just barely planting enough just to survive. They need to change their outlook, their mentality, and do a little more. So what do they need? I said, well, if they had a tractor, that, and God says, so? And I said, you're kidding me, Lord. You're expecting me to get a tractor? And then be in the business of doing rice and corn and what else? And before long, it was even also compost because those farmers were saying, yeah, you tell me to plant more, but how am I going to fertilize that? Where do I get the seed? We found a solution for the seed. What do I do about this? Well, we're getting into compost. If I had come to you last time and said, send me back to Mali, I'm going to do rice and corn and compost, I don't know if you would have sent me. (laughs) Business unusual. God says, meet them at their point of need. Some people in this church helped us buy that tractor. We're so thankful because as we begin to do this, 
we found out that we created a venue, a context, in which we're transacting with Muslims every single day of our life, every day. We're sharing our life message daily with Muslims, and in that context, Muslims who never would have darkened the door of a church are with us, and not only are with us sharing together, when a need arises, we bring in point of need story from the Bible and dealing with it, but we're praying with them, and then now they are beginning to tell us, because we're credible in their eyes, they're beginning to tell us some really heavy stuff like what? They said, one of our needs is the education of our children. We have no school. We have no school. And God said to our hearts, well, meet them at that point of need. He says, Lord, how am I going to do that? I, I, I was home on furlough. I never talked to anybody about school. Where am I going to get the fund? God says, are you kidding me? Have you ever God, heard God say to you, are you kidding me? When he does that, you just want to find a hole and crawl in it and just hide there. Because I knew God was going to come through for us, and he did. But I knew that God also was going to do something unusual with this school. It wasn't just going to be any school. And by the way, it's a Christian school, but we couldn't say to them, this is going to be a Christian school. Here's what we said to them. said, we're going to do this school, and you can go to the next slide and show that. Uh, We're going to do this school, and it's not going to be your... Your normal school. It's going to be a school where we're not just concerned about your children's intellectual development, but we're going to be concerned about their character, character development, and what they're going to learn there. They go, it's going to be a school that's run according to our principles, just like we showed you that we're doing uh, farming God's way. We are farming according to certain values, in the same way that school is going to be run with those same values. In fact, somebody said, well, what are those values? And I was able to say to them, well, you know how I lived. You know what those values are. Because I knew we were credible in their eyes. And I said, those are values like, you will have no God before me except God. You will honor father and mother. You're not going to... Take God's name in vain. You're going to have respect. You, you, you're not going to cheat and steal. There is no, no cheating at exams. There is no bribing. There is no corruption. There is none of the stuff that goes on in public schools in Mali. There is none, you will not be violent. You will not kill. You will not harm. You, you will not covet. You will not lie. These are the values that your children are going to learn. And we're going to share from the good book that you've seen me share with you those values. And I will tell stories that exemplify those values. That's what we're going to do with your children because we're concerned about their character. And they're saying, we want to entrust our children to you. And somebody even said, it's better than that the imam gets a hold of them and radicalizes them. That was quite a statement. Wow. And someone said, hmm, Jiggy Akalanso, the school of hope. Our children are going to have hope. We were able to do two phases of the construction. We're looking to finish that building up there. Business unusual. What's unusual about it? We said to the parents, you're going to pay for your children's schooling. And they said, wait a minute. We don't pay up the public school. I said, I know. But we want you to pay. You have to pay for your children to go to school, to our school. How are we going to do that? Because they're very poor people. I said, it's not a matter of money. 
And I began to tell them what, I, what God laid on my heart, a new thing, business unusual. I said, for every child you enroll in our school, we're going to have, if you have three children, well, you're going to give during the dry season, not planting season when you're doing your own crops, but during the dry season, you're going to give to the project two days a month for every child. If you have three children, then you owe us six days of work at the project every single month. You will come while your children are in school. You are going to be in school to learn about having a second harvest, which was totally new to them. During the dry season, yes, a second harvest. We're going to teach principles of irrigation. We're going to do drip irrigation. We're going to do different things. But you're going to have proceeds from that, that, that work that not only will subsidize that school, but also you will get to take a part of that harvest to help your family with it. Because during the dry season, that's when they're starving, many of them, because they run out of food. And God was putting in place something that's a win-win proposition in every way. But the part that is most wonderful is that in the process, during those days that they are with us at the project, we're going to be interacting with them, and they're going to be hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is it working? And I've taken way too long. Let me wrap it up. Let me tell you about Faisal. Faisal is a Wahhabi Muslim. They're the more radical ones. He comes to the project like many people, first curious, first wanting to learn something, and then we get him to be part of the group of workers. And Faisal, the very first day that he was with us, I had him do something unusual. Not just because God does business unusual, but my wife tells me it's because I'm crazy. Uh, I, I do this with Muslims. I don't ask them permission. I just turn to Faisal and I said, Faisal, at mealtime, just like when you saw in that earlier picture how we sit together, we eat out of common bowl. I said, Faisal, today you're going to say the blessing. The very first day he's there with us. You're going to say the blessing over the food. He says, what? Yeah. He says, oh, you want me to say Bismillah Rahman Rahim? Because that's the formula in the name of Allah, the merciful. And then they start chowing. Just an empty ritual. I said, no, no, no. Not that much more than that. What are you talking about? I want you to pray to really say thank you to God from your heart. Well, I don't know how to do that. Oh, you don't know? No problem. No problem. You don't know? No problem. Here's what we're going to do, Faisal. Here's the bowl. Do like I do. Put your hand on the edge of the bowl. Looks at me and says, you put your hand on the edge of the bowl. You believe in God, you believe he gave us good things. Put your hand. He puts his hand next to mine on the edge of the bowl. I says, now let me lead you in a prayer. Repeat after me. And I lead him in a prayer of saying thank you to the Lord for the food that he gave us. In the name of Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. When I open my eyes, several other Muslim hands have joined us touching the edge of the bowl. Faith is already welling up in their hearts. Why do I do that? Because I want even an unconverted Muslim to experience the presence of God, to taste that the Lord is good, to feel his power. And sure enough, down the road, Faisal said to me, can I ask you something? I said, yeah, what? He says, that day when you asked me to pray, I think about it sometimes when I go to sleep. In the morning, I'm thinking about it. It just did something to me. I said, what did it do to you? He said, it was like electricity shot through my body. How do you explain that? I said, oh, well, that's, is that bad? He says, no, 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 it's good, but what is it? 
And I had the joy of sharing some things with him without giving too much. Then comes the day when Faisal says, you know what, can I have that good book from which you constantly bring stories? In fact, I noticed that even when we have a problem, if there is a quarrel between two people, you bring a story from the book to address that. Can I have a copy of the book? In Arabic, he says, because as a Wahhabi Muslim, he's one of the few that's been uh, very much educated in Islamic schools, speaks Arabic fluently, which is highly respected in Mali. So I give him a Bible in Arabic. Then the day comes when Faisal said, can I have a second Bible? He said, what second Bible? Yeah, yeah, not in Arabic, but I want it in the local language. I said, what for? He says, well, the local imam here asked me to bring the Friday khutbah the Friday message, the Friday sermon in the mosque. And so I've been taking the good book that you gave me in Arabic and those stories that you've been telling us and I've been sharing them in the mosque on Friday. But I want to make sure the people get the story right because not, hardly any of them understand Arabic and though I'm translating, I want to make sure that my translation is correct. And so if I have that story in the local language too, then I'm sure I will not make a mistake in telling them the stories of Jesus. Can you imagine an unconverted Muslim who takes the Bible into the mosque and is sharing the story of Jesus on Fridays in the mosque? I said, are you doing this every Friday? He says, no, no, no. Every so often when the imam calls me. And then came the day. About six months ago, I was with Tom Keating, your missionary to Mali who works with me. Tom and I had the privilege of bowing our heads together with Faisal as he accepted Christ. Faisal became your little brother in the faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Muslims are coming to Christ. Muslims are coming to Christ. Thank you for sending us back to Mali. Thank you for what you've been doing all these years. But I just got to put the challenge before you. We live in a resistant culture anymore. Ask God to help you be his witness to change people's perception, to be flexible, to do business unusual, to meet people at their point of need. We are desperate for the kingdom of God to be more manifest around us here than ever before, just as God is doing it with us in Mali, as we're doing it together. Thank you. Would you just for a moment stand together as pastor comes to lead us in prayer and in the remainder of this service. I have cheated him this morning. I took so much of his time. Forgive me, pastor. But we've been seated for a time. But this is a moment when it's important for us to respond from our hearts. As pastor prays now, would you make that prayer, your prayer of commitment as we prepare to come into a season of worship and of furthering missions? Please, please, this is a time for us, for the Holy Spirit to hear from our hearts something, a response to what he's been saying to us. Pastor, lead us in prayer. Amen. Fauzi, thank you so much for that message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We've heard from you today, Lord. We've heard from your heart through Fauzi's lips. Couldn't be said more clearly, Lord, your love for people, for God so loved the world. And we are recipients of that. But we're also people that want to share that love in the same way that Fauzi has demonstrated here today and explained. So, Father, in these next moments, these are moments of commitment of our lives. These are moments when we decide how we're going to play a part 
in this great mission that you've given us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to all the people of this world, our neighbors next door, the people in Mali, and everywhere else, Lord. That's our high priority. That is our mission. That's the, that's the task you left us with, Lord, before you ascended to heaven. And so, Father, we commit ourselves. Now, in these next moments as we come to communion, I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us, speak to each of us about what you would have us to be doing to bring other people to the table of salvation. And, Lord, we give you thanks for this. Now, be with us, Lord. Manifest your presence here in these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.